Well, hello everyone and welcome to Medical Alerts Healthy Hour. We're really glad that you joined us today. So um, again, happy, to, happy that you joined us. Today our hosts are myself, Melody Howard. I'm the Director of Community Alliances at Medical Alert Foundation. And joining me as co-host is Julie Hilton, our Vice President of Communications at Medical Alert Foundation. Hello everyone. So today's agenda, um, we'll cover some information about MedicAlert. Um, we'll spend the bulk of our time on questions with Dr. Paul Puri, or excuse me, Puri, um, managing stress and anxiety during COVID-19, and then we'll um, wrap up with some resources for you. So a little bit about MedicAlert. Um, many of you are repeat joiners, so you're familiar with the MedicAlert story and we welcome you back. But for those who of you are not familiar with MedicAlert services, um, here's some information about us. We are the original medical ID that were created in 1956. And what's unique about us is that we go beyond the ID and we're backed by a 24 seven emergency response team who are standing by to relay your critical medical information to first responders. And MedicAlert is the only nonprofit organization in the medical ID space. All of our revenues fund our emergency services and help provide medical IDs and memberships to people in financial need. Our mission is to save and protect lives by sharing vital information in our members' moments of need. Here's a little bit about how the service works. Your medical ID is engraved with your most vital health and identification information. In an emergency, first responders contact our 24-7 emergency response team to get your full health record. Your health record includes information such as your health data and emergency contacts, which we do provide on your behalf. We've trained first responders to look for your MedicAlert ID, empowering them with vital information. Now, more than ever, given this current pandemic, it's so important for first responders to really know any existing conditions that you have so that you can get the best possible care. MedicAlert, we're your voice when you need us most. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our guest of honor today. Um, Dr. Puri is a board-certified psychiatrist, excuse me, psychiatrist in private practice in Los Angeles, California. He practices multiple forms of psychotherapy, including hypnosis, and also manages medications. He attended medical school at University of Rochester and specialty training in psychiatry at University of California, San Diego. He's currently a clinical assistant professor at UCLA and the president of the Psychiatric Clinical excuse me, Faculty Association at UCLA. In his non-clinical time, he consults and writes for television and is the chief medical officer for an online mental health hub, Udify, at udify.com. Welcome, Dr. Puri. Thanks, Melody. So thank you all so much for your great questions. Um, we had a lot of questions submitted, so we'll spend absolutely as much time as we can on those questions today and try to hit on as many of those topics as we have. We've categorized the questions so that we can kind of walk through and step through things that, um, that make sense in that order. So let's go ahead and get started. So our first question in the category of stress and anxiety, um, is it normal to have emotions go up and down frequently during this time? I sometimes feel hopeful and energetic and other times anxious and fearful. What are some of the signs of anxiety? 
Absolutely. And thank you, Martha and Mary, for, for this question. I mean, I think that everybody is feeling a lot of anxiety around this. And we talk about these things as kind of anticipatory anxiety because there's so much uncertainty about what's happening uh, economically, politically. And then with COVID, there's a lot of questions about where is this going? What are the risks? Where are the risks for me as an individual? There's so much unknowns that anxiety is a very natural and understandable reaction to that. Um, and quick fluctuations in the emotions and fear are very understandable. So I think it's important to, to sort of, we call normalize it or really recognize that, that it's okay and understandable to be having this with so much uncertainty in the world. And I don't think the news really helps that in terms of, it, I think it tries to play into our fears a little bit. Um, so I think being able to have the, the hopefulness and the energy is, is understandable as well as the anxiety um, and the fear. Common symptoms around anxiety, just for those that aren't familiar with the term, you know, in, um, it's really organized around kind of what we call a fight or flight response. It's something that our body is built into do since caveman times or before for sort of self-preservation. So our heart rate can be going, we can get a little sweaty, we can feel a sense of urgency or panic. We can feel like we want to kind of the fight or flight is we're going to either fight or run away for survival when a bear comes to attack us. And so anxiety comes up in situations that feel life-threatening but might not be life-threatening and there might be other stuff like our hair stands on end again we can feel our heart rate going adrenaline is really pumping our muscles are sort of tensed and organized and we can have a lot of thoughts that go with that such as all of the doomsday or what we call catastrophic thinking all the bad stuff that could happen is building up in our head so all of those things could be happening simultaneously or you could be having just a, a couple of those at the same time and I think sometimes the term normal is really loaded. Like, yeah. you know, what, what's normal? <laughs> yeah, I don't actually even use the word normal because I think it, it conflates kind of two common concepts. And I, I, instead I use um, healthy and common because some things are common, but not really healthy. A lot of people have it, but it doesn't mean it's good for you. A lot, sometimes it's something that's healthy, but not a lot of people are doing it. And some things are both and some things are neither. So I don't really like to use the word normal um, if I can help it. I probably just used it in what I just said, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I take it back. Okay. I like that. <laughs> um, so our next questions, um, also on the category of stress and anxiety, what are your top three recommendations for managing stress during COVID? And for those deemed essential throughout this health pandemic, what would you recommend to de-stress? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that the first priority is doing what we call self-care, which is sort of how do you take care of yourself during in terms of the things you do for how you manage your time and your sort of self maintenance to manage all of the outside things that are happening that are so stressful and that might be economic or it might be you know very real healthcare concerns or threats to family members so the basics are you know prioritizing things like eating healthy food to kind of get good fuel for yourself making sure you're drinking enough water getting sleep if you can doing things that are very simple and relaxing if you if you have things that already you know work for you but we can talk about a couple of things that we could add that you could add on um, and then really sort of limiting the additional sources of stress in your life so you know, limiting the news in terms of what's going to be coming in from that as a source of stress, limiting, you know, 
if other if you have particular people that really seem to rev you up, making sure that you're only getting exposed to them for so much time, and then spending time in other ways outside of sort of the stress bubble. So how can you have time that's actively focused on relaxing or sort of cultivating um, a sense of peace for yourself? Um, if you're in a if you're in an essential worker and you're really in sort of the front lines of being potentially exposed, it's it's a really tough position to be in. I think that, that we have to um, understand what our risks are and, and eventually reach a point of being able to accept some, some level of that. But also just knowing again that there is uncertainty and, and we have to somehow find a way to, to find peace with uncertainty in the middle of it, which is a really tough thing to, to come to. And I think that the, um, I think I was gonna talk about it later, but I'll just mention you know, there's certain concepts that are sometimes helpful in, in managing this. Some people, uh, small little adages, um, people who are depressed are stuck in the past and people who are anxious are stuck in the future. So just focusing on the now and focusing on staying in the now can be really um, a more helpful way of sort of managing moment to moment, as opposed to getting caught up in all of the other things where our head can go. I, I think something I... Yeah, no, I think something I would add here too is that I know there are a lot of medical alert members that are living with some sort of chronic health condition that puts them at extra uh, risk during this pandemic, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or asthma. And, you know, from all of the speakers we've had in recent healthy hours, one of their things has been, you know, you have to keep taking care of yourself and your chronic condition and Absolutely. keep that under control and having, you know, exerting some of your control over that is actually something that helps uh, helps and relieve some of your stress and anxiety. Absolutely, I think there's something there's something in there both about managing. You have to do what you have to do to take care of yourself because there are very few people have someone who will prioritize you more than you need to prioritize you, and that's not selfish. That's just again like self care. It's self maintenance. It's self preservation. But then just as you're saying, Julie, the, the division between sort of what's in your control and what isn't, kind of like the serenity prayer of, you know, God grant me the, oh God, I'm going to blank serenity on Serenity to accept the things I, the things I change. cannot change. Right. The, <laughs> the, courage, peace, the courage to change the things I can. <laughs> and the wisdom to know the difference. Exactly, yes. And when we can sort of parse that out, then we don't feel a pressure on ourselves. And this is true for all anxiety, pressure on ourselves to do things that are kind of impossible. We should put our energy into the things that we do have some level of control over. Right. Our third question today, um, also on the category of stress and anxiety, submitted by Christine, what are options for dealing with anxiety and how do I know what's best for me? Yeah, it's a hard, it's, it's hard to give a specific recommendation. That's one of the things that we're actually working on on Udify um, is like being able to give personalized recommendations. But there's kind of some big buckets that you can think about besides the stuff we talked about in terms of managing self-care and sort of limiting the stressors in your life to the degree you can. There's sort of active things that can help and that's things that are just like relaxation exercises, um, meditation, if you could try out meditation, there's some very simple forms of meditation. No meditation should ever be complex. It's all very, very simple. It's just a matter of sticking with it for five minutes or more. Um, and then there's more, uh, there's other more sort of aggressive approaches like um, seeing a therapist, going to therapy or seeing a psychiatrist um, and potentially getting on a medication that might help with anxiety. Um, just in that camp, I would recommend against things that are more of in the tranquilizer uh, category, thing, like Xanax and clonazepam and Valium, stuff like that. I would try to go towards more benign ones like 
um, SSRIs like um, Zoloft or Sertraline or, or Fluoxetine or Prozac, things in that category are generally uh, more benign and, and with fewer side effects, especially as we get older, that tranquilizer category can get really dangerous. Great information. These questions submitted by Connie and Roberta, what medications are helpful for anxiety? So you may have answered that. <laughs> with minimal side effects, and can increasing one's vitamin D3 decrease anxiety and depression? Um, yeah, so the SSRIs are probably the best for the anxiety. There's some sort of rare or less common ones um, besides the tranquilizers. So there's things like anti-antihistamines um, that can sometimes be used. These are things like hydroxazine or Vistril. Um, you should really talk with a specialist about all these things because if you have any pre-existing medical conditions or if you're just older, um, these things do have some potential side effects that you want to be aware of like sleepiness or some of them can drop your blood pressure a little bit and, and, or increase fall risk. So you just want to be careful with all of those um, anti-antihistamines uh, um, and the tranquilizer ones. The, um, the, the SSRIs, which are traditionally an antidepressant, are also considered a first-line medication for anxiety. Um, and are pretty broadly prescribed and considered relatively safe. They all have little bits of different side effects to, to be aware of. So again, it's good to talk with your doctor about it um, and also for them to check to make sure it's not interacting with meds that you're taking. Um, in terms of vitamin D3, there's not a lot of evidence. I, I did a quick search. I didn't find hardly any in terms of it being useful for anxiety. There is, if you have vitamin D deficiency, like you're truly deficient, you don't get any sunlight, maybe your kidneys aren't, are, have some trouble and you don't take any in your diet, maybe you have some vitamin D deficiency and that can cause anxiety. But in terms of adding to it, if you're not vitamin D deficient, it probably doesn't really help. There's a little bit of evidence for depression, um, but it's not really necessarily a first line thing to, to, to think about. I would, I would um, recommend just getting uh, a little burst of sunlight each day um, before really trying to supplement with vitamin D. And vitamin D is also something that's fat soluble, so it can store up in your body if you take too much. So it's a good thing to talk to your doctor or, um, or physician about um, before really adding that in as just an attempt, because unlike the B vitamins or vitamin C, which is just water soluble, if you take too much, you'll just pee it out. Vitamin D, if you try to overload it, can really build up in your system and cause problems. Um, I know that just sometimes getting 10 or 15 minutes of sun on your face can be incredibly uplifting and healing. Absolutely. And there's a whole science to that. Vitamin well. D. <laughs> and I see someone was asking also about mirtazapine, which is another name for that is Remeron. That's an antidepressant that's often used for sleep. Um, it sometimes is used for weight loss as well because it can stimulate your appetite a little bit. It's, it's okay for anxiety. There's not a huge, it's not traditionally like a first line. It's more of a second or third line at best for anxiety, but it's, it has a long history of being used for depression. So um, if you have, if you have depression, you have trouble sleeping, it's worth, and you have any like difficulty maintaining your weight, it's worth talking to your doctor about trying that medication out. Thank you. So our next question submitted by Kurt, what are the most effective non-pharmacological approaches to relieving stress or anxiety? 
Um, so any type, so the, the research on this really goes back to the 60s with a researcher named Herbert Benson. He studied something called the relaxation response. The relaxation response is the opposite of the fight or flight response. So this is when your, your blood pressure comes down, your heart rate comes down, use oxygen more efficiently. And this is really brought on by, um, by things like meditation again, which meditation can be as simple as closing your eyes and just repeating a number to yourself, just saying mentally to yourself the number one, one, one. Doing that for five minutes can bring on the relaxation response. That's as simple of a meditation as you need. You don't want to think about the number, you just mentally repeat the number. Um, other ones include, you know, hypnosis, massage, there's some other things like acupuncture, um, but anything that you really truly find relaxing or stress relieving is probably going to be beneficial. Um, but those are some of the better researched ones. Um, and there's multiple kinds of meditation. There's mindfulness. There's sort of that mental um, number counting one, which is like a mantra meditation, as it's sometimes called, um, and, and other forms as well. And then hypnosis is, um, is a pretty effective uh, one if you, if you have sort of someone that you could work with on that. And there's self-hypnosis books that are out there as well. Um, what about physical, physical activity, exercise? Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, I left out a big one. <laughs> physical activity, exercise can be uh, tremendous. So it has benefits for pretty much everything. It has benefits in terms of depression. Um, it actually, there's very good science in terms of how it actually benefits um, the, the, a specific chemical in your brain that actually helps with brain regrowth, something called BDNF and which is itself sort of the evidence of, of how antidepressants work as well. Um, so it helps your, brain, your body and your brain respond to stress, respond to anxiety, respond to depression, and can help to really rebound and give it some flexibility with that. So a little bit of more kind of cardiovascular exercise, so getting your heart rate up a little bit um, is probably key. So our next area, we had tons of questions related to sleep. So insomnia, waking up often and very early, unable to go back to sleep, or feeling that anxiety is affecting sleep, what can we do? Yeah, so sleep is complex. Um, the first thing I like to tell people is um, sleep is something that should just naturally happen if you get the problems out of the way that are, that are kind of causing the sleep issues. And some of that is internal problems or external but we come to something called sleep hygiene, um, and we'll include some links at the end for this. And sleep hygiene is sort of the idea that there are some things that make your sleep better and some things that make your sleep worse. So do more of the stuff that makes it better and less of the stuff that makes it worse. So um, there's a little, there's ways to break this down. So some, some things are more common in what we call early insomnia, trouble falling asleep. Then there's middle insomnia, trouble staying asleep. And there's late insomnia, which is just waking up early in the morning and trouble getting back to sleep. Um, I'm going to sort of go in reverse order. Um, the, the late insomnia, the trouble staying asleep at the, in, or waking up early morning is something very common in older people and, and really um, is something that may be supplemented by naps. And there's not great quick solutions for that. Um, I generally don't recommend medications for sleep if you can help it. Um, the middle insomnia is when people wake up and then they may get their mind going with something very quickly and find a trouble uh, falling back asleep. And there's some easy sort of tricks with that, just making sure that you're not reading anything because your brain has to wake up completely in order to read something. Um, and you're not turning on any major lights um, because the sort of light stimulation can, and including reading a clock, by the way, a clock can also require your brain to be fully awake. So just sort of moving those things out can, you might wake up, 
but you'll hopefully be able to get back to sleep more easily with time and practice. I know a lot of people have their phones next to their bed and they sort of, at first when they move their phone away, they sort of blindly reach for their phone and can't find it. And so um, it just takes a little bit of practice of, of remembering, oh yeah, I'm not gonna look for it. I'm not gonna check the time and then practicing some exercises to bring yourself back down, such as um, a little bit of breathing exercises. There's some breathing exercises that can help you calm down or one of those meditations again. And then the early insomnia, the falling asleep issues, there's a whole host of things that can cause that. So caffeine is important to look at, um, having a good bedtime ritual that sort of winds things down. So like making sure the lights are dim, the screens are off, TV, phone, computer, all of that. And then just really having ways of sort of calming and getting yourself into a mental state ready for sleep are all um, kind of good steps for it. And again, if you have anxiety tools, such as uh, a meditation or other, other uh, tools for that, that you really sort of integrate that into your wind down process. We had several other questions related to sleep that were specifically around uh, the screen exposure and yeah. what that does. So I don't know if you can talk to that. Yeah, so there's sort of two components of that. One is just general light. So bright light um, can is, light is a natural stimulus to our brain to wake up and darkness should be a normal stimulus to fall asleep. But since industrial times for the last hundred plus years, you know, our signals are a little skewed. So anytime we have screens and we're getting blasted with light, it can be a huge stimulus for us to wake up and it doesn't allow our normal rhythms to really set in to fall asleep. So sometimes people will turn off as a, to change it, they'll turn off their screens and do some reading or something calming on the way to bed to sort of let, their, let them get in tune with their tiredness that's actually there. Um, and then the other one is blue light. Blue light is a particular frequency of the light that can really be stimulating. And so there are blue light glasses you can get that actually filter that out. Um, and that helps kind of keep you less fatigued if you're on screens all day and also help you in terms of um, the wind down time at night because blue light can be especially stimulating. Yes, just, I, ha I, have, I have my own blue light glasses. There we go. So now we move into the category of depression. Um, this question submitted by Carol, what strategies do you recommend on managing depression during COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, depression is a little bit of a, um, a, a lumped category, and I kind of divide those up a little bit into two major ones, and that's sort of the category of grief or loss, and then there's the category of um, sort of hopelessness. And so grief or loss is really, you know, it might be loss of an identity, something that we view ourselves as, which might be a job, or it could be a loss of a family member or a friend or a connection of someone we spend time with. And so there's an entire separate, sort. first is to identify what you're going through, or it might be a combination because there's so much happening right now. And so being able to identify if it is a grief or loss, who can you be grieving with? How can you be working through the process of getting past this, which itself, you know, might, might benefit from, both of these may benefit from some therapy. And if you can't leave the house, there are teletherapy options right now in terms of going online like this with a therapist and working with them on your computer. Um, but there are medications that are options. If you're, if you're um, grieving, you know, there are sort of things that we have built in culturally as sort of grief, uh, a grieving process. So, you know, writing letters to what we've lost or really processing what it means to us and, and taking what is good about it and saying goodbye to, to what we didn't want from that experience. I'm really boiling therapy down into 10 second snippets here. Um, <laughs> 
And then the other side is sort of the hopelessness. And that is sometimes I'll, I'll condense this into the idea that I'll ask people, um, do you have a goal or an identity that feels impossible to achieve and impossible to let go of? And that's sort of a formula for hopelessness. And so the way out, often with the help of a professional, is sort of exploring, is it really impossible to achieve or is it really impossible to let go of? And one of those is probably shiftable. You could find some way to find a new goal or to find a new identity or to find some way to do it that you haven't thought of before. Or it might just be having to find connection to another person and making sure that you're with them when you're going through this to really find hope. So I'd say all of those are sort of um, strategies in there. Um, and then the last one I'll say is just finding something that keeps you motivated that you can do every day that keep that feels fresh and, and interesting or exciting for you that you can keep going and when you're staying kind of again in the now because i said before depression is being stuck in the past and anxiety in the future so staying in the now i think i, I heard somebody say it might have been you melody earlier about learning to let go or just being okay with being dragged along if you can't let go yeah i said i think i told you that, was you. That, okay yeah, <laughs> patient who has um and this is kind of a buddhist concept um, that that change is inevitable in the world. We can't fight change and that suffering is inevitable if we fight change, if we can't hold on. So I have a patient who has on her fridge, um, let go or be dragged. Right. And it's a, it's a little motto, I think, that is a harsh reality in facing everything going on, but it's also like the world is really hard and it's going to drag you along if you, don't, if you don't let go of some things. So just for a I think you can also, it's harsh, but you can also sort of flip it around. It's like you can choose to let go. And that's Absolutely. something that you have control over, right? Yeah. And, and you can change that outcome. Totally. It can be empowering to feel like you can let go of anything that you want to. Right. And I think when you're in the middle of going through something and all of a sudden, if you could just really think that, okay, if I stop and let go, then I can move forward. So great stuff. Absolutely. Now, this question submitted by Aline, how can you identify things are getting out of control sooner before things fall apart? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a little bit hard to answer without getting into specifics of, of the individuals. But a, a rule of thumb is sort of um, recognize, and it, there's sort of versions for yourself and then versions for other people. And so if you notice that you're sort of, um, that you're sort of straining to get the basics done, that you're still you know, checking the boxes in terms of you know, your daily routine of what you're supposed to do every day, so to speak, um, and, you're, and you're sort of keeping up with whether it's work or other responsibilities, but it's taking more and more effort to really do it. You're really kind of white knuckling it or forcing it, then that can kind of be indi indicative of a trend that it might be useful to like reach out for a little of help just to be able to reflect on it and see if you if you could benefit from, from some things, whether it's relieving the, the burden from, of, of responsibilities or getting some type of additional help like, like therapy or medication, um, something like that. And if you're at the place where you're really starting to notice difficulty in what we call ADLs, which is activities of daily living, things like showering or eating, um, taking basic care of yourself, that's a really important sign to say, you know what, I really need to talk to somebody. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so now we have a question on isolation submitted by Phyllis and Sharon. 
I'm older and live alone. I notice that being alone is increasing my anxiety level. What can I do? Yeah. Um, you know, I could give the sort of the common answer from my field of psychiatry, which is we can medicate that, um, which is an answer. There are, again, medications that can help with anxiety. But if you're really identifying that this is from feeling alone or even loneliness, if we were to categorize it that way, and there's a difference, um, then finding some way of connecting to people. So scheduling phone calls, if you have computer access, doing an online sort of group um, so there's group chats that people do. I got dragged into a, an online karaoke session the other day, which I don't know if people are into karaoke, but nice. <laughs> there's, you know, there are things where you can feel some way of conversation and connection to people, even though you're not in person. Um, and so it's really, you know, using all of the technology that's there, which, which seems to get in the way of our connection, or it has so often, but is now a little bit of a tool for us to connect to people to some degree in a safe way because of COVID. So, um, yeah, and I think hopefully there, are, there may be other resources in your community um, based depending on where you are in terms of people in your in your age or peer group um, trying to find ways to connect as well um, whether that's a, a senior center or otherwise so um, trying to find any ways to connect with peers um, in a social or a support group is is often really useful because everybody is going through this right now you're not alone in this you may be alone in your home but you're not alone in feeling this way So this question also on isolation and um, because I have COPD, I'm facing a long quarantine time. How can I lessen the stress of the separation from community? Yeah, I have to give kind of a similar answer. I think any ways that you can find to connect to the people that you normally connect to. So I've seen everything from um, people having drive-by birthday parties where they get into a car and then drive by each other to phone calls every day, sometimes for hours a day. Some people just leave the phone or a Zoom call on through the day where people can feel the company of their friends and they can be, feel connected to them. Um, anything that helps you feel connected is a useful thing. So it's sort of looking at who can you connect to, what ways can you connect to them, and then, you know, if all else fails, reaching out to the people that you know to brainstorm with them about, you know, how to use the resources that are around you um, to benefit you. I have, a, I have a friend who's told me, we're bringing back the long phone call. You know, when we were growing up, we used to spend hours on the phone with people and we don't do that anymore. But we're, in the last few months, I, I feel like I've talked more on the phone than I probably have since I was 17. But it's been all been a good thing. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, phone calls and group phone calls and all of it is, is I think it's wonderful to get people out of, um, out of their sort of isolation um, or the routines of their lives that have kind of kept people from, from having the time for those long phone calls. Yeah, totally agree. So this, as an extrovert, which I completely understand where, where Nancy is coming from, how do I manage social distancing? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think there's two sort of aspects of being extroverted. There's sort of the energy component of it, and then there's the social um, sort of engagement and responsiveness. So when we engage with people and we're getting constant feedback from that, um, and we sort of crave it, how do we how do we cope with that? If you just have energy, then looking at is there other ways to channel that energy, such as physical exercise. 
um, something else. Um, if it's more about the social aspect in terms of trying to get feedback from people, then it's trying to find, again, any way that you can to, to feel connected to people. So um, again, spending time with them online or otherwise. You know, I've, I've heard the term social distancing and a lot of people are starting to push back against it yeah. because it, it, has an, it has a connotation that maybe no one intended from the beginning. Is it really more appropriate to say we should be physical distancing and getting closer socially? hundred um, percent. Right? We may be apart from each other, but that doesn't mean we have to be not connected. Absolutely. And some people are even, you know, you should, you should always be aware of the risk with it, but they're, they're wearing masks and they're doing, you know, appropriate physical distancing, but they're behind like a, a window between them, but they're in the same, they're in visual range of each other and they can talk or, you know, some people are doing far apart in a big room, which, you know, is questionable in terms of recirculated air, but, you know, being, doing what you can to protect yourself, well, but not socially distancing, absolutely just physically. Um, what would you, would you please talk about touch deprivation? How do I satisfy my need for physical contact and intimacy? And we had several folks who submitted these questions. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's something that happens that people talk about when they're, when they're alone and without that for long enough, they can feel a kind of skin hunger that happens. And I think that there's, um, there's not an easy solution aside from making sure that you're doing something that gives you a sense of physical contact, um, giving your skin some ongoing sensation. So, and this can come under sort of the umbrella again of self-care. So things like taking baths or wearing, wearing soft and comfortable clothes. There's also things like weighted blankets or even weighted shoulder pads that sort of give a little bit of pressure on the body and can give a little bit of relief for that. Um, but beyond that, it's sort of what can you, is there any way to have physical contact with a person that's safe? And so it's worth talking with your doctor and, um, or anyone else about, can you, is there anyone that you can have inside your bubble or your pod that you can be quarantining with or safe with that you could have physical contact with? And then the really extreme category is um, people that do hug suits. If you've seen these, they'll, they'll wrap themselves in a, um, like a shower curtain and then they'll hug somebody just to feel like they can squeeze another person, but there's still a barrier between them. Um, Maybe I need that. (laughs) I'm a, I'm a hugger and I've missed it so much the last few months. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wish there was an easier solution. There's definitely no medication for that. (laughs) So our next question submitted by Nat, can you please talk about rise in domestic violence, especially as it is even higher for people with disabilities? Yeah, Um, you know, when people are isolated, um, their frustrations tend to run higher and that can be a big uh, risk for increased domestic violence. There's concern that since people are with disabilities and, you know, children as well are not sort of getting outside social contact, they're not in school or they're not visiting with other family members or care workers, that if domestic violence is happening, it's not being seen. And so all I can say about that is that, it, you know, the risks are obviously there. It's probably happening. It's hard for us to really prove how rampant it is, like all domestic violence, because without the, the sort of insight into what's happening in people's private homes, we don't know. Um, but that, you know, people should know that there are enormous amounts of resources to be able to reach out at any time that you can get to 
a safe shelter, including with physical distancing, a safe shelter, a safe place for you if you're in a situation that is causing you to be in danger. Um, and obviously people with disabilities are, are even more vulnerable because they're often dependent on other people, including those who might be simultaneously abusing them, even though they help take care of them uh, with their, for their disability. I think the important thing is that those resources do exist. Absolutely. Sometimes and that's a very hard phone call to make to, just to start that process, but, um, but help is, can be there. Absolutely. And there are 800 numbers and based on your region, there may be additional services, including things like adult protective services that may uh, be able to, to intervene uh, immediately. So our next category on helping others, Philip submitted the question of, um, are there any signs to look for that show someone is secretly struggling with the pandemic? Um, you know, I think that there was some of the things that I mentioned before in terms of drop-offs, in terms of personal care. I would think haircuts should probably be the exception to that right now, but that, you know, if someone is sort of not taking care of themselves and you can see them sort of dropping off in their level of functioning, it's worthwhile to be concerned about. Um, there is another category in here, which is people who are getting, sorry, they're doing construction next to me. I don't know if you guys can hear that. It's like a big hammering. Um, the, uh, which is in the area of sort of paranoia or what we commonly call psychosis. So there are people who may be a little more paranoid that now that really gets brought up to a 10 or an 11 in terms of amplitude. And so if you notice that happening, um, yeah, being able to intervene in a way that's safe or in terms of asking if they need help or if you're really concerned that someone is dangerous to themselves or to other people, calling the local authorities to sort of do a wellness check and to check up on them. Again, only with what's safe for you. Um, but those are some of the signs that we, that we generally think about. So people who are isolating more, who are getting paranoid or hostile towards other people, um, and really a drop off in terms of the level of how much they're taking care of themselves. So some other questions also on helping others um, submitted by Anne, Henry, and Paula. How can I assist my significant senior other who seems subject to depressed days during semi-lockdown? And if a loved one is becoming overly agitated by worry, how can I assure her or divert her attention in a healthy way? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I would say um, is important to recognize that you don't have to do any of this alone is to reach out for outside resources mm -hmm. for help. So that might mean a local group, it might mean professional help like a therapist or psychiatrist again, um, and not try to do all of this on your own because it's very, I would almost say impossible to actually solve someone's depression yourself. And so it's useful to turn to people whose job it is to be able to help you with that. Um, again, that might require medication, it might or benefit from medication or therapy or something else. Um, if someone's getting really agitated by worry, again, I would really look at getting outside help on this and making sure that you're protecting your own safety. Um, in terms of diverting attention away, you know, there's, there's sort of steps that might be taken to sort of uh, lessen the triggers for things like that, for anxiety for people again. So if it's news-based, how do you limit or contain the amount of news that people are watching per day to say an hour of news? Even though we have a 24-hour news cycle, there's probably not anything that needs to be watched by the minute right now. The changes that are happening in the science of COVID is happening over weeks or months. 
Um, so just limiting that to, to keep everybody calmer and focus on the things, again, you do have control over. Um, and that might mean building a hobby or something else for yourself. I think you made a good point about reaching out for help. Um, I was really encouraged that we had so many questions that were not about like, would you know, help me? They were more like, I want to help someone else who I see is suffering. I thought yeah. that was really cool. Um, but the, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we've had a number of different speakers and there's so many resources out there. For example, with um, one of our partners is Alzheimer's Association. They have a 24 hour helpline that has uh, clinicians that staff that to help, you know, with a lot of people that are, um, have dementia or Alzheimer's loss of routine is a very, very much a trigger for them for anxiety Sorry. and other things. So, you know, those kinds of resources do exist and mm -hmm. uh, it's just so important to ask for help and not, and to your point, not have to feel like you're the one that has to solve, solve it or fix their problem. Yeah, I would really take a lot of pressure off yourself if that's the if that's what you're telling yourself and, and reach out to the many resources that are out there. And um, yeah. I think this information is so helpful to a lot of people because I, I think that, you know, to some degree, we all want to just take it on our own shoulders and, you know, and help our loved ones. But, you know, knowing when um, to cry uncle and, and look for someone else to help is, is really important. And knowing those resources are there is super helpful. Absolutely. We all want to take care of the people that we care about and love. And it's just, um, that doesn't mean we have to do everything. And sometimes it's best if we're not the ones doing it. Right. Right. So our next category on coping skills, these questions submitted by Doria and Janet, after 100 days at home with all the time to do projects, why don't I get into those projects? I have no motivation. Um, and also, I no longer enjoy any of the activities that got me through the first two months of lockdown. I'm now feeling anxious and depressed most of the time. What can I do? Yeah, there's something called the Parkinson's principle. And this is... Um, uh, the time required to do a project expands to fill the time allotted to it. So um, basically, we we when we don't give ourselves a deadline, when there's nothing really pressuring us to get something done now, then things just sort of never really get done. Um, and so you're not alone with this, is what I would say first. Um, trying to find something, what was it about trying to come back to what was it about this activity that actually inspired you or this project that actually inspired you and trying to find some contact with that is fairly useful. And then finding some type of a deadline, whether you set the deadline for yourself or you have a friend or family member sort of hold you accountable and say like, you know, you're supposed to do that by the end of the week. It's, it's a little artificial um, because there, there may be no consequences if you don't finish it by that deadline, but maybe it's some way to sort of, um, to sort of stir up the motivation with it. Um, in terms of losing the, the second question here, not enjoying activities after two months, um, I think the, the, sorry, I just got distracted by a separate question in the chat. Um, the, I would say that no activity is probably going to feel the same level of excitement um, if you're doing it every day. So I try to, to diversify. It's kind of like eating your same meal uh, over and over again. We experience the world through contrast. And so um, if we eat the same meal over and over again, it's just going to feel, it's going to lose sort of the impact on us. Um, so finding some way of diversifying that, adding more options for yourself that you can experience and enjoy 
And it might be kind of having going back to the drawing board. How did you find those activities in the first place? And is there anything else that you've always thought about doing that you haven't really spent any time on that you could find some way of, of, um, of getting it started? Um, in terms of feeling anxious and depressed most of the time, that's a, a huge distraction. So I would definitely look for, for some level of, of outside help with that just to kind of dig into what's really happening. You know, around the first question about having this time and why am I, why have I not gotten anything done? Um, I think we can all, Rick, <laughs> can all appreciate it and understand that. Um, we, had, we had a very good uh, session a few weeks ago with um, folks that work with uh, people who have autism. And, you know, again, people that really appreciate routine. And she, one of, those, one of the tips she gave was it was really important for them to have like a visual schedule. Mm. Uh, here's how I'm going to have some structure to my day. And sometimes just having those kind of cues can help um, create more of a sense of purpose and increase the motivation. Uh, Absolutely. That's a great. As opposed to having zero structure. Julia, it's a perfect word, I think, is structure, is like when we have a, not too much structure, but the right amount of structure for whatever our life is for us personally, then like a lot more kind of emerges. And that might be sort of structuring a set period, a scheduled period of time to work on an activity, or it might be, again, having a deadline is a form of structure, but finding what the right structure for you is that'll help keep you going um, is really a great thing to examine. So this question submitted by Shelba, how can you look forward to a future event when there's no idea when you can plan one? Good <sighs> question, Shelba. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that um, sometimes we use the term holding it lightly, um, which is sort of if I have an idea or something, I don't have to like cling to it and I don't have to push it, but I just sort of hold it lightly and not get too attached to it. So there might be something that you say someday I'll get to where I'm planning on this, but not putting all of your eggs in that basket. Um, and again, coming back to focusing on now, there's a couple of books that I think I put into the, the resources that we're going to have at the end, which are very popular. Um, one is books by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist uh, thinker that is really focused on um, aspects of mindfulness and being focused in the moment. And then the other is The Power of Now by um, Eckhart Tolle. Or these are two very popular authors um, that sort of get into the, to the aspects of staying in the moment and finding some type of peace or joy um, in, in the now. I think also that you can plan without, you can plan towards something that maybe doesn't have a specific date too, right? Like, yeah, I, like that. I know when, eventually when we can travel again, as I love to travel and have missed it a lot, you know, I've been spending a little bit of time thinking about where do we go next and doing a little research and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of creating that sort of vision board for um, what can happen, you know, once we're out of this uh, sort of cycle of, uncertainty that we're, I mean, well, you'll never be out of a cycle of uncertainty, but you know, you'll have a little bit more autonomy over your, uh, yourself and your activities. So. Yeah. I love that. Still plan. Yeah. The future. <laughs> um, so question submitted by Meg, Irene and Marvin, do you have suggestions on how to filter out all the noise between the news and social media? It's overwhelming. Mm. Um, I think that filter is the right word there. I think it's, I think everybody is experiencing this right now because when you, 
we don't, we, when we're home all the time, it's very easy to just stay, keep that in the background, news and social media. So really trying to limit the time for it, kind of giving structure to this as well. If you're going to watch the news, again, 24-hour news isn't helping anybody. 24-hour social media isn't really helping anybody. So finding sort of a, a set or scheduled time for it, so maybe an hour, maybe two separate hours a day if you're really going to do two hours of all that, but limiting the time for it and finding, setting aside time for more peaceful or, or meaningful activities for yourself. So our next question about moving forward, um, submitted by Maria. My children don't agree with my isolating. How can I explain my feelings to help them understand? Yeah, uh, well, Maria, that's a tough, it depends on your children's sort of rationale if they're, if they're taking, um, getting into the political side of this debate as opposed to sort of the scientific. Um, I don't, I generally don't think that science should be politic, politicized. Um, and I think your health should not be politicized. So I think doing whatever you can to, to protect yourself is important. Um, I had a mentor once who used to teach um, couples therapy and family therapy. And his entire take was that um, the biggest problem that families or couples have is being unable to tolerate another person being different. And so if we can let the, someone else have a different opinion than us and yet still be connected to them, still have a relationship with them, that's fine. We don't have to agree with them and they don't have to agree with us and we can still coexist and, and even be close. So, you know, can, is there a way that you can talk about, you know, it's your body, it's your life and you get to make your choices and that you don't have to convince them and they don't have to convince you and you can still be family. Um, that might be a path. I don't know that it's the only path, but it's a path. Um, yeah. So some more questions on moving forward. Elizabeth, Linda, and Elaine submitted, can you please share some tips for integrating back into our daily lives after being home? And how do we overcome worrying or becoming fearful about leaving home? We've all been home for so long. Yeah. And I think that there's been so much uncertainty about how do you get infected? Where could we get infected? The fear could be anywhere because it's kind of invisible. Um, I think starting out by really, again, acknowledging that it's understandable and it's, it's again, not normal, but because I don't like the word normal, it's very common uh, to have that kind of fear going back into the world. And so I would just generally recommend giving, your, giving yourself permission to take it slow, pace yourself. You don't have to do everything all at once. You don't have to jump back into it because we, because based on the numbers, cases are rising right now and that, you know, we, we should be taking it slow. We should not be rushing things and we should be taking appropriate precautions. So, so give yourself uh, permission to pay attention to your feelings and validate your feelings and, and use those as an indicator to, to take it step by step. Um, in terms of integrating back into the daily lives, you know, it's, it's about still taking, I think it starts by taking appropriate precautions and then what is the thing that I'm, that I'm willing to do or need start out, what do I need to do today to get back into life, whether that's going to work or visiting a family member that I've been putting off or something like that, but taking just one step a day and not trying to do too much too fast. We, we actually had some people in the, in the questions 
say, you know, I'm worried I'm actually becoming agoraphobic. Like I'm just super, I'm personally scared to leave my house. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that idea of taking it one step at a time and in stages is really important for some people. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Absolutely. Again, appropriate precautions with masks and, and physical distancing. Um, and then just recognizing that a lot of anxiety and fear is anticipatory. It's in our head. It's what we anticipate happening. If we were to go out, what we fear would happen. And so doing things that can actually change it. So if you've really only been in your house, is there a safe place that you can sit outdoors? And maybe it's just in your car with the windows open, but actually feel like you're out of your house for a little bit to sort of change the context of your experience and help you to sort of slowly ease back out into the world. So our next question also on moving forward, submitted by Karen and Martha, I have chronic conditions that put me at risk. I take precautions, but it's so upsetting that others don't wear masks or observe social distancing. How do I handle it? Uh, I'm right there with you. I think that, that it's really frustrating when um, people don't take appropriate precautions and think about the people that they're, who are much more vulnerable, even if they don't think they're vulnerable, that there's others who are vulnerable that they may spread it to. Um, and the, the really culturally inappropriate uh, version that I heard is like people who think that they only need to pee, they're only peeing in their side of the pool. And so it's, you know, it's, it's affecting for all of us and it's infuriating uh, for many of us and, and frustrating and the consequences uh, play out elsewhere. So um, I don't have an answer that to deal with the frustrations over things that are happening in our society that don't make sense and, and are not understandable and that very realistically affect us other than to come back to what you can control and, um, and understanding that, that other people unfortunately are given the room in our society to make bad choices and, and we have to do what we can to protect ourselves. I was having this conversation with Melody earlier. I was in the grocery store and there was somebody standing literally right behind me, not wearing a mask and it made me really uncomfortable. And I'm like, I don't know. Can I say something? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's that it's an interesting thing. It's, it's, I don't know that speaking up actually changes the other person. Right. Maybe no. like, maybe there's something about, um, I saw a video in some uh, borough of New York where, where people were basically all the, all the other customers piled on to one person who refused to wear a mask and they actually got the person to leave. <laughs> maybe like public shaming in that way will create some pressure, maybe. Right. Um, yeah. It's okay. so hard, Julie. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our last question submitted by Ursula, and I think this is a great question to wrap up with um, in the category of resilience. I think the world is changing around us with 9-11, COVID, and who knows what next. How do we learn to cope and adjust to the uncertainty? Yeah, uh, I think I have to come back to, to the let go or be dragged kind of approach. It's a, again, it's, you don't have to be Buddhist to, to recognize that there's a little bit of wisdom in some other philosophies of the world and that change is inevitable and that we've been, we've had a very stable society for a while and right now things are a little shaken and we don't know where things are going to go. So what can we control? What do we, can we, can we lump into the category that we don't have control over and how can we embrace the idea that of now and just take the next moment, a moment at a time. 
Um, yeah. What are some of the things that you recommend to help people build resilience? Um, you know, uh, we're gonna, you know, things are going to continue to come at us. How do we, yeah. how do we learn to, 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 I guess, you know. Absolutely. I think, Julie, that a you. lot of these things are what we've already talked about. Um, so there's aspects in terms of building a routine for yourself, some structure to your time, making sure what's built into that is ways of taking care of yourself. If you're a caregiver, for example, and people have ever heard of caregiver burnout, that happens very much because we feel a pressure to do things for other people to the degree that we're not taking care of ourselves and we get sick or something happens. And so how can we come how can we make sure that we're maintaining our own um, bodies and well and health enough to be able to continue to live. And then, you know, there's a very clear um, social aspect to resilience that having close relationships um, and maintaining them, even in the face of stresses is something that that helps us to sort of to continue to rebound and having a, a spending time focusing on who you are and the last thing I'll add is um, there was a guy, Viktor Frankl. Um, I don't know if you, anyone's heard of him, but he was a psychiatrist during uh, World War II and he was, uh, he was put into the concentration camps. And um, he, back then the teaching was, you know, if you take away everything from people, if you take away food and you take away shelter, that man will revert to being animals and they'll claw each other for survival. And he's like, my, that wasn't my experience. He said people were actually in the camps were really generous to each other and took care of each other and helped each other. But what discriminated the people from that, uh, that just barely made it from the people who survived or thrived is people who found something that gave their life meaning or purpose. And so finding something for that, finding that as kind of a North Star for yourself is maybe um, more important than than having things be predictable, um, and I don't. That's a very individualized thing to find, but it maybe is a, a better way to to organize our thinking. I thought a lot about. I think that is a silver lining of this for a lot of people of having some clarity around what's really important to them and what is the thing in their life that matters, and having the time to sort of figure that out or being forced to figure it out in some cases um, could really end up being that, uh, that thing that creates a resilience that helps them move forward. Absolutely. We have just a few more minutes here. Um, Dr. Pori, thank you so much today. We really appreciate um, you answering all these questions and providing some insight for us. Um, so now we want to share with you some resources. So Dr. Pori, would you like to talk about the mental health resources? Sure. So Udify is the first one. Udify is a, it's a mental health uh, tech startup that um, I started with uh, some colleagues and we're trying to kind of make it a, um, a centralized place for mental health. It's an early company and we're still building out the technology, but the right now it can match someone with a therapist and eventually we're, we're building the tech to um, to be able to match people with whatever resources exist that uh, in their community or publicly that would be the right fit for their needs um, based on sort of a psychological profile. Um, but we're, you know, we're still early and we're building some of that technology already exists and some of it is in development and we're still fundraising and, and all of that stuff. So um, keep, keep an eye out for us. Um, feel free to, to go to our website and, and download our app and do other things. And um, if, you, if you'd like any more information, always feel free to reach out. We also have, Julie, would you like to talk about the additional resources we have? 
Well, actually, I'll turn it back to Dr. Puri. These are some of the ones that he brought to our attention. Yeah, so these are just some, some links on um, sleep hygiene. So things to, to help understand, again, the, what are the things that make sleep better and what are the things that make it worse? Um, and a little of it, for example, talks about caffeine and caffeine can be in your system, even though you may be able to sleep with some caffeine in your system, it can last for up to 24 hours or 25 hours. And so you may not be getting a deep sleep and with all the stress, it may, it may push things over the edge. And then I know that, um, that some people, someone has asked about melatonin, for example. So um, there are, there are over-the-counter sort of things that can help with sleep. And some of these links will, will talk a bit about it, but that most of the ones like melatonin sort of pull your sleep schedule, but they're not like sleep medications per se. They just sort of shift your sleep schedule towards when you take it um, in the day. Yeah. Uh, and then Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle, just some books about sort of the now and, and mindfulness and being present. Um, and just to note, we'll, uh, I know that Deanna's popping these uh, links into the, con, into the chat right now, but we will also, for everyone that's registered, um, send an email follow-up with a replay of today's session, as well as um, all of the links to the resources that we're talking about here. Great. I think the last page, there are um, a lot of people that are providing some really good resources around mental health and specifically as it relates to COVID. And I think these three organizations, the NAMI, the Global Health of Living Foundation, Health Guide, um, all have really valuable things, especially the Global Health of Living Foundation. They really focus on, um, for someone that has a chronic illness, um, all the different things they need to think about when navigating COVID. And I found that to be um, an incredibly resourceful, or a helpful resource. Um, we'll also invite you to visit our COVID-19 Resource Center on Medic Alert. Um, again, we've uh, provided a lot of information for people that are living with very specific chronic medical conditions during this time, um, as well as a number of trusted resources. And we'll add uh, the things that Dr. Puri recommended here as well. Um, we do hold these events every two weeks. Um, all of the replays are available online. Uh, we encourage you to go back and take a listen. Um, if you enjoyed today's conversation, which I certainly did, then I think that you'll find a lot uh, to learn and to enjoy in these recordings as well. Coming up in two weeks, um, we have uh, Portia Singh. She is with Phillips Research North America. She will be talking to us. Uh, her research is all around caregiving and helping people uh, age in place and uh, strategies and resources for caregivers and um, the elderly. So I think that she's gonna bring some really interesting things to our attention and be able to answer a lot of questions about the new normal for caregiving when everybody decides what the new normal or common not normal, maybe we should change it to common, the new common. The new common. <laughs> yep, so that registration's available. Um, we will ask you to hang on, we're gonna do one very quick survey, one question. Um, also, please don't forget if you're a Medical Alert member, um, we keep your online profile and emergency contacts. It's super important that you have those up to date at all times. If you have not checked in with us and updated that information, please do so. Um, it's the information that we provide to first responders in an emergency. So help us help you by uh, making sure that's up to date. And I think Melody just popped our survey question up there. Yes. Great. So if you answer those, that question for us, we would greatly appreciate that. We always like hearing about um, how, how your experience was and if this session was helpful for you.
Thank you so much for attending today, Dr. Puri. Again, thank you so much for your time. And um, everyone stay safe and take care. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.